0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be.
1: Now when they heard these things, after Stephen preached at some people, when they heard these things, they were enraged, as most faithful people are, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, doing what? standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. I feel like that's Sophia's verse for her life. I feel like somewhere along the way, my daughter said, you know what my verse is? My verse is they stopped their ears and didn't listen to anything that he had to say. We'll pray her out of that. They rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord.
0: A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1-14. through Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going.
1: We're talking about, since Easter, we're talking about what could go wrong when things begin to go right. We're talking about the idea that we need to have wisdom in things going well. One of the biggest struggles of Israel after they were delivered was that their blessings enslaved them more than Egypt did. Their blessings became more of a hindrance to them than even their slavery in Egypt was. And there's a way in which we need wisdom when things are going wrong. How many know we need wisdom when things are going wrong? We've gotten really good at things going wrong. We've gotten so good at things going wrong that we end up having them go right because we're so good at them going wrong. And then there's no more drama. And then we don't know who we are when there's no more drama. I've said it before, and don't look at me because I'm not a dramatic person. Right, Jacqueline? Even keeled, they say. Calm, cool, and collected, they say. And by they, I mean all the voices in my head say (laughs) that. We all know the person that when things are going well, they're like, well, this can't last for long let me say something, let me do something, let me start something. While most of us are not doing that, we get lost in peace a lot because we're crisis-oriented people. We know who we are when the boat is being slammed by waves. Sometimes we don't know who we are when it's peaceful. And so I wanted to talk about what What do we need to be aware of when things are going well? And you might be saying, well, you know what? This isn't for me because nothing's going well. It will. It will go well, and there will even be things going well inside of a life that always seems to be going wrong. But it could go right on a Tuesday, and we need to be able to drink that down and taste it, yes? If it's always going wrong and you get a day where it's going right, man, you need to indulge all that you can in that day, amen? And so what could go wrong when things go well? Well, we talked about a few of them and today I want to talk very quickly about when things begin to go well, we tend to move into manager mode and try to preserve the life that we have that is going well and we stop being priests and we become managers, managing our life, trying to decide how we can keep this goodness happening and not realize that that is the birthplace of legalism. That is the birthplace of being controlling. When things go well and we finally get some stuff that we've been looking for, instead of holding it before God and opening it to others, we all of a sudden become gatekeepers. We all of a sudden become soldiers and warriors guarding this life and making sure that no one can enter it that could become a threat to it. Stephen is the first martyr of the church, and his saint day is December 26th. Does anybody know the day that came before December 26th? It's a fun day. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And so they celebrate... Stephen's martyrdom the day after Christmas because the church was jolly and positive And they said, hmm, after such a fun day, let's celebrate somebody getting stoned to death. I don't know why, but actually I do know why. Because they want to make sure that when things go well, we remember that the gifts that God gives to allow things to go well are gifts that we are supposed to offer to others and not keep away and guard for the rest of our life. Stephen is associated with Christmas and on Christmas we know that there was a manager of an inn who only wanted to keep making a profit and accidentally did not have a space for Jesus or his holy mother or father. But we know that a barn had more than enough room and enough space. So the question is, when things begin to go well in our life, are we increasing space Or are we decreasing in space trying to keep people out? When we have doctrines and beliefs that we feel good about, that we can measure, that we can decide whether or not they're going well. Like we, do you, you might not realize some of the walls that we just broke down with baptism in the Holy Spirit. If somebody asks me starting now, what is one of the coolest moments that you've had since you were pastoring? It would be the moment we just had. When we realize the Holy Spirit does not fit into a doctrine, the Holy Spirit does not fit into anything that we can measure, the Holy Spirit, if we need him to be holy, has to be able to blow everything we could ever possibly measure for him or against him out the box. Amen? And so some people might be like, oh my goodness, he just told some children that they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, what if they didn't ask to be? Well, what if what God chooses for us is bigger than what we choose for him? What if, and and go with me here, what if his choice for me matters more than my choice for him? And here's the thing, that might make you nervous, but I really hope that that's true, because my choices for him haven't always been that great. His choice for me has always been perfect, amen? I really hope at the end his matters a little bit, as Sophia would say, a teensy bit more than my choices for him. We just did something spectacular by saying there's a whole culture around first evidence being speaking in tongues. Why? Because we can manage it. We can measure it. We can say you just had an experience and I can tell you why. Because you can now pray like this. But what happens when the Holy Spirit does things that we can't measure? What happens when it's true that eye has not seen nor ear heard? What if that's really true and not a way for us to think that we haven't seen it or heard it, but that really means it's just stuff that we know about that we really want that we can't get? What happens if it really is boundaryless what the Holy Spirit has, so boundaryless that we can't try to describe it or measure it because it's bigger and better than that? Do we want to be people of the Spirit, or do we want to be people who cage the Spirit, and we get to determine what's the Holy Spirit and what's not. It's not helpful. We just did something amazing when we did that. We said, sometimes the greatest experiences in life are those that I realize I had after I've had them. Sometimes it's not always in the moment where I can say, wow, I just had an encounter. Sometimes it's 10 years later, and I look back on an event and say, I had no idea what that conversation was when I had it, but my God, that sent me on my way, and I didn't even know. I had no idea but we become managers whenever we get something good we want to manage it we want to manage doctrine we want to manage morality we want to rescue the family from all the immoralities and so we just build we we pray hedge of protection but really we're building jericho somebody write that down we pray hedge of protection but really we're building jericho and really all god wants to do is destroy the hedges that we really built because we're deciding who can come in and who is out. These people are rushing at Stephen because he's telling them a truth that they didn't hear growing up. And because he's a threat to them, they eliminate him. Willie James Jennings says this, if you don't have the commentary for the book of Acts by Willie James Jennings, Go on Amazon, get it on Kindle, and read it today. The entire thing, cover to cover, including the footnotes, and then report back to me tomorrow. Okay? Yes? Everyone will? It'll be great. Great. You should read this commentary. It's outrageous. But one of the things he says about the Stevens story is this. He says, we must notice the way faithful people, say Faithful. Faithful, faithful people can yield to an original order. And kill if they believe they or God are threatened by another witness. We must see the way in which faithful people will kill if they believe that another witness is destroying their version of God and the life that they have developed for themselves. If you don't, well, you know what, it was the, the unsaved people who did that. Well, it wasn't unsaved Peter who tried to kill somebody. He was just terrible with a knife. That's why he didn't kill Malchus. It's not that he had mercy. It's that he didn't know how to wield the knife very well and cut off his ear when he was trying to do something worse. But what does Jesus say? Faithful people don't eliminate. We hold, before, we hold them before God and hold space for them, but we don't eliminate them. But look how quickly faithful people can even rebuke and kill and reject and ostracize because somebody else is a threat to the God they developed and the life that they have built for themselves. And you might think, okay, well, so this is why we have wars and stuff. You know what, though? But it's also why we live life despairing all the time. Because we're trying to preserve a way of life And when we become managers and not priests, we either possess things or eliminate things, but we don't hold things before God. Ian has a slide for this. Managers possess or eliminate to maintain order. Priests hold life open before God to preserve space. I really have so much to say, but I'm only allowed to say one thing. One thing. With subnotes and footnotes. When Stephen, when those men were hearing him preach, they were only hearing him through the voice of their triggers. Salem, listen to me carefully. This is your word for the day they were only hearing through their triggers. Stephen was hearing through Good Friday. Managers, when we decide that we have a way of life that we want to preserve, and when we decide that other people should have a life that we think is best for them, we turn life into a a chessboard, and start moving pieces around strategically to preserve a way of life. And what happens is we get incredibly small in our worldview and life becomes a vexation of thinking we're always getting it wrong or they're always getting it wrong or something bad happened in my life because i must have gotten it wrong and we really become we become prosecutors defense attorneys and judges real fast instead of shepherds and gardeners that we're called to be we become more associated with law than we do with gardening We say we got saved out of the law, and then we even turned our salvation theology into a law court analogy. We are impressively amazing at turning everything into law because grace makes us scared, because grace cannot be managed. It cannot be measured. It is, permeates life, and we don't want it to permeate life because we want to be able to say who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, And what was the name of the tree that we weren't supposed to eat from in the very first rule ever given to us, the tree of the knowledge of what? We maybe weren't supposed to be looking at life this way, where it can be measured. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree of formula, the tree of A plus B equals C, versus the tree of life. Well, what is that? Yes. Well, how do I measure that? Sure. Well, does it make any sense? Probably, yes, definitely, 100%, maybe. They were hearing Stephen through the voice of their trigger. But Stephen was hearing them through the sound of Good Friday. Here's the thing, and this is for somebody. Heaven opened in this moment, just like it did over Jesus' baptism. And when it opened, Stephen saw it, and nobody else did. It didn't say heaven opened for Stephen. Heaven opened, and Stephen saw it, and nobody else did. Here's the word. Every one of you will say in your brain that you experience God on a regular basis. But the reality is, I believe many of us only say that in our brain. But it's been a long time since we've experienced the true euphoria of knowing that Jesus is with you and in you now. There may have been a time where you could wake up and your feet could step into the new mercies that are by your bedside in the morning and you felt it here, moved in this area. Now all you have is here. So if somebody said, do you know he's with you? You'd say, yes, I know he's with me." He says he'll never leave. You'll start quoting Bible verses. And when you start quoting Bible verses, it may be that your brain is experiencing something that your soul is still thirsty for. Because when Jesus really shows up, it's not Bible verses that we start quoting. It's just 100,000 different ways to say thank you. Stephen saw it because he wasn't managing his life. He was offering his life to God. And was able to see heaven open. And Jesus doing what? Now what does Paul say? He is what at the right hand? What does the creed say? He is what at the right hand of the father? Well in that culture, the one seated was the one in authority. So if this was then, you would all be my boss. Right now. This is why in some old school church circles, the pastor's got this big huge chair up here. This Game of Thrones looking <laughs> Targaryen sort of. That's what I've heard. I don't watch secular TV, but that's what I've heard. You see how mean people, sure. <laughs> Jesus was standing, and what was Stephen doing? Kneeling. Kneeling. When Jesus saw him offer his life and not manage it, Jesus stood up and said, now I'm here to serve you. You sit down. That little detail is outrageous. That for 2,000 years, the church says he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And you know what he does with that authority? He stands up and uses it to serve the least of these And Stephen saw it because he wasn't managing his life and he wasn't managing their life. He was holding them before the Lord with open hands, creating space for them. And I believe that there are many of us, if not all of us, that we are trucking through life knowing who God is, but we have lost the moments that take our breath away from him because we're managing our life, desperately trying to keep things from falling apart. Managers possess things or eliminate things. Priests, which we are all called to be, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Priests hold things before God and create space for them. Yeah, but what does that mean? Exactly. But what do I do? Right. That feeling we all have right now where it's like, pastor, cool, great. But what do, all right, so he said to hold before the Lord. Okay, so how? Exactly. Exactly. Once we get into that, we're managing again. That's why one of the most famous phrases in the Bible is this Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Everything else is up to you. We don't possess and we don't eliminate, we hold. I believe that heaven is open. I believe that there are ways in which Jesus is standing in your life, serving you, that you do not see because you are spending so much time managing, trying to control, trying to make it right for you and right for others. And there's a space in which we have to just simply hold. What does Jesus say? What did Courtney read? Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Notice in Genesis, I so lied when I said I had one thing. Notice in Genesis, God did not put Adam and Eve into a formless and void world. He made an entire globe. He furnished it with all the furnishings. Yes, a man furnished the home and nested. Come on, Jesus said, behold, if the bride, if we're the bride and he's the groom, why is he the one who's nesting in the home furnishing a place for us? I'm sorry, men, but maybe we kind of bailed out on that one. Jesus goes to set up a home. Jesus goes to decorate a place. Jesus goes to make it look beautiful. And then he puts Adam and Eve eastward in Eden, this whole globe. But he made a special place just for them. And then Jesus says to us, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. But then in Exodus, he says, build me a place, build me a tabernacle. So watch this. God makes us a place and then says, now make me one. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And in the meantime, while he's preparing that place, we prepare a place for him. What does that mean? We open up our lives in such a way where we hold space for the least of these, for people who are different, for people who don't see life the way we see it, to have space in our life. That's how we make the tabernacle now. He's preparing a place for me, and my track record is definitely one where I deserve to be in heaven. If you look at my life, you will say, there's a person... Oh, my gosh, the way Pastor Bill is patient and kind, and he talks so well. When his son dumps coffee on the couch, he doesn't yell and scream like an idiot. He just loves him. And he's like, that's okay. We're all going to be okay. He doesn't blame his wife for leaving the coffee out. Like, she doesn't. he doesn't do any of these things. He's just like, you know what, well, I think in this moment before, we, let's, we should all just pray. We should ask God what he thinks we should do with the coffee. Maybe he'll turn it to wine. I don't know. Let's just see what happens. None of us deserve the place he's. That's why he's got to prepare it. Because we couldn't make it. But maybe it's our job now to create a space where undeserving people can be in our life. And maybe we don't see them as undeserving. Maybe we just see them as people. And maybe when we just take our hands off a little bit, we might stop looking at the X's and O's of our life, and we might start seeing heaven open. And the Son of Man standing to serve us. And do you notice it doesn't say Stephen died? It says he fell asleep. It may be, watch this, that when you let go of everything you're trying to hold together, and then your worst fear happens and life starts crumbling on you, it may be, That God will give you rest in the middle of your worst trials. He fell asleep. Because even while being murdered, God gave him rest. Whatever you're going through, when you take your hands off of it, you can sleep in a storm. You can be at peace within yourself when everything around you is rocking. When we stop managing and start stepping into that place he's prepared for us. (laughs) Finally, John and Steph, come on up. I tried. John and Steph, come on up. This is for us for the table now. Saul was standing there, and he approved of the execution. He held everybody's coats while they stoned Stephen. Saul was managing, trying to keep things holy, trying to weed out the contaminations he was managing and one day he went blind for three days and when he regained his sight he ate bread when adam and eve sinned it says that their eyes were open which means that for us to see rightly our eyes need to be closed see i tricked you never answer questions when I ask them. I know what you were going to say. Our eyes were open, so they need to go blind so that they can be reopened again. Saul needed his eyes to grow dark for three days so that when they opened again, he could see the old things in new ways. You ready? He needed his eyes to be closed so that he could taste and see that the Lord is good. And so let's all stand to our feet this morning. If you're here and you can say, I am definitely trying to manage my life and I'm motoring my way through and maybe I'm organized, but every day I go to bed organized, I start to wonder, there feels like there's something more I'm missing. I'm getting it right but I'm missing this thing that I used to have, this feeling that I used to see heaven open. If that's you, I just want, when you come and receive Jesus' body this morning, just pause at the altar for a moment while you eat that bread and say, Lord, close my eyes and reopen them again. I want to stop seeing life like a chessboard and see it like a field again. I want to plant, wait, reap, repeat. I want to work slow. I want to have to trust. I don't want to have to put a life together where I don't need to trust. That's what so many of us are doing. We're trying to set our life up in a way where we don't have to trust. We can measure it and see that it's working. God took the dust of the earth and he turned it into a human. How much more can he take bread and turn it into Jesus for us? Amen? While I have you, after you take communion, please go back to your seat. Raise your hand if you've accomplished so much in life that you no longer need a blessing. No, seriously. Raise your hand if you can say, my life is so perfect that I no longer need to be blessed. Everyone should help me, Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And so many of us leave before it is. Let me say this thing just before I have to say one thing. I just have to say one thing. Whatever you do on Sundays is what you're asking God for during the week. So when we show up late and leave early, we're asking God to show up late in our life and leave early. When we arrive early and stay until it is, we're asking God to show up early and stay until it is finished. So maybe call me crazy. But maybe we get here in this room at 9.55 and pray that God would bless somebody else before the service starts. Imagine what the week could be like if we offer God an extra and hold on to your seats five minutes and hold space for others before the service starts on Sundays. Just a thought. But let's, let's take what God has given us and slow down with it and be in it until it is finished it will train us to live our life that way lord jesus it doesn't just say that you loved us it says you loved us until the end to the uttermost and so i pray that you would descend on this bread right now and make it for your people the body and blood of jesus the same way that you turn dust into us i pray that you turn this bread into the body of your son the food and drink of new and unending life in him and descend on us and teach us to take our hands off of life to stop managing life and to start holding life before you and waiting to see which direction the wind blows on the things that are unresolved in our life and do our best to obey you, and to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so I pray, Father God, that as we receive your body, we will also receive the ability to walk slow and patient and carefully in our lives. In your name, and everybody said.
0: Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location,
1: check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.